sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Do you think you might have migraine? Talk to your healthcare professional about your symptoms, the number of days they impact your life, and which treatment options might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com and the American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. Rethreaded offers hope and a fresh start to survivors of human trafficking right here in Jacksonville. None of us should be defined by the worst things that happen to us. Learn more about how you can unlock the potential of survivors at Rethreaded.com. And by Norellis, a leading neuroscience company focused on the development and commercialization of therapeutics for the treatment of epilepsy and other neurologic disorders. The company's unique drug portfolios strive to address unmet needs in patient care. Learn more at Norellis.com. Hi, I'm Dr. Joe Servin, a practicing neurologist and professor of healthcare science. This is what's health got to do with it, which looks at where and how healthcare intersects with your life, helping you get the medical answers you want. Coming up, can you guess the topic of today's show from our opening? If you guessed vision, then you're right. Indeed, it's our vision show. Then, we look at the well-being of nurses and what we can do to help them and ourselves. But first, today we focus on a topic that's as eye-catching as it is eye-opening. Pediatric vision health care. Picture this. A world seen through the curious eyes of children, where every day is an adventure filled with imagination and wonder. But what if we told you that according to the CDC, one in four school-aged kids have an undiagnosed vision problem? That's right. Even in the age of tablets and smartphones, our little ones, peepers, need TLC too. But don't worry. We've got you covered. We embark on a journey to explore the enchanting realm of pediatric vision health. Discover the secrets of healthy eyes, unravel the mysteries of colorful glasses, and hear from our pediatric eye expert as she shares her heartwarming stories as well as advice of kids who've transformed their lives by simply seeing the world more clearly. So whether you're a parent, a teacher, or just a big kid at heart, Get ready to open your eyes to a world of insight and inspiration right here on What's Health Got to Do With It. Let's start the show now. Joining us in studio is pediatric ophthalmologist at Wolfson's and Nemours, Dr. Michelle Atz. Welcome, and I hope you can forgive all the puns that I use uh, in our intro today. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. It's really great to be here. It is great to have you as well. Let's start from the very beginning. Uh, mm -hmm. I can't say ophthalmology three times real <laughs> fast. So can you, can you, for our listeners, what is a pediatric ophthalmologist? Sure. So let's start with what an ophthalmologist is. Okay. okay? So an ophthalmologist is a medical doctor who's involved with the eye health of the population. Okay. So when we add pediatric onto that, um, we're essentially saying that we look after the eyes of children. Okay. 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 Um, so that, that is in a nutshell. So here's the thing that people always get confused in visual health care. Mm -hmm. Optometrist, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. ophthalmologist. Mm -hmm. Can you just settle that difference for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a great question. Um, so pediatric ophthalmologists and optometrists work very, very closely together. Okay. And, but there's certain differences in what we do. Both pediatric ophthalmologists and optometrists can kind of diagnose and treat certain eye conditions. But because of the training that a pediatric ophthalmologist does and an optometrist does, pediatric ophthalmologists actually do the surgical treatment of eye conditions okay. of children. And the more com within their remit of their practice, they can do more complex treatment plans for children with eye health problems. Um, so for example, 
a pediatric ophthalmologist will start off going to undergrad school mm -hmm. and then they'll go to medical school. Okay. They'll then do a residency in ophthalmology. And then they will decide that pediatric ophthalmology is the best specialty in ophthalmology. <laughs> and they will then decide, right, I'm going to do a fellowship in pediatric ophthalmology, which you really should do to kind of hone in on those skills that you need to do the surgical treatments for children. And then that gives them the skills to do the surgery and the more complex treatment plans. Optometrists go to undergrad school, then they'll go to optometry school. Mm -hmm. And then, in fact, we have two optometrists in our practice, fantastic optometrists, who sometimes they will go on to do further learning and do a, a kind of like a one-year uh, specialized training, mm -hmm. uh, pediatric optometry kind of residency, just to hone in on the skills to be able to work with children. So that's the real difference between between the two. That helps me so much. Can you explain what are the most common eye conditions mm -hmm. in kids and how are they treated? Sure. So I think in practice, you will see the majority of children with needing glasses. Mm -hmm. They come to see us because they their eyes are crossing, something known as strabismus. Okay. So the eyes aren't looking straight ahead, as you would expect. Or there's another term, um, a slightly antiquated term called lazy eye, which is amblyopia. And essentially, this is where the vision in one eye is different to the other eye. So it's mm. lower than the other eye. So I'd say those are the three main conditions we see on a day-to-day -day basis. But we also see things like eye infection, eye allergy, watery eye. And by watery eye, I mean, you know, the eye, tears are running down the cheek um, without crying, essentially. Um, those are the kind of conditions that we, we see on a... Uh, a, a more frequent basis. So for infections, you know, eye drops, uh, what we use mainly. For watery eye, about 20% of children under the age of one will have some sort of watery eye. Okay. okay. And we normally just like to observe these children because research has shown by the age of one, 90% resolve on its own. Okay. So nothing really needs to be done. However, I will say we do want to see children with watery eye, particularly if it's continuous, if it doesn't just come and go, because sometimes children can have coughs and colds and they get watery eyes then, um, because it can be an indicator of rare but more serious conditions like foreign body in the eye, infection, glaucoma can present as a watery eye in a lung oh, child. Wow. So we still like to see those children because we just want to rule out the more serious conditions. One of the questions that I often get, because there's so many different types of doctors, is mm -hmm. when should parents have their eyes checked out by someone like you? Sure. So I will always say the role of the pediatric ophthalmologist is to do a comprehensive eye exam. And not all children need comprehensive eye exams. You know, there's a fantastic schedule in the US whereby there's vision screening done from birth up until the age of five before they're about to go to school. And one thing I will say is, you know, I really encourage parents to make sure they go to their well child visits because I think those are the times whereby it's easy to ascertain if a child has an eye problem because children don't complain if they've got vision problems. You know, the younger they are, they don't vocalize it because to them, this is how they see their world. So they don't think there's a problem. But if you take them to screening, that is a really good way of, of picking it up. And then if they fail vision screening, then that definitely warrants a referral to a pediatric ophthalmologist like myself and my partners. What I will say, though, is there are some children who are more at risk of developing eye conditions. So children who were born less than 32 weeks of gestation, mm. um, children with other health problems that can affect the eyes. Um, for example, children who develop arthritis um, as a child, that can cause inflammation in the eyes. So they should be screened oh, for wow. that. Um, children with neurodevelopmental problems, you know, we'd like to see them for a comprehensive eye exam. And if there's a family history of eye problems, you know, if mum, dad, siblings all have eye problems, then that definitely also warrants you being seen for a comprehensive eye exam. So I think that is the importance between um, when screening is adequate 
Um, screening continues up until the age of five. And in fact, the American Academy of Pediatricians says, you, you know, post entering into school, every one to two years, children should have screening for eye problems as well. So engage with this screening process, but also if there are any risk factors for eye problems, bypass screening and get a referral in to see a pediatric ophthalmologist. I mentioned in our intro, at least some CDC data on just the magnitude of eye mm-hmm. problems in kids. And I'm just curious, is, does that jive with you? How common are eye problems in kids in your mind? In my, yeah, I think that is a f- that was a very fair statement you made. I mean, when you look at some of the data, they will say that 6.8% of all children in the United States have a, eye, a diagnosed eye condition and 3% have visual impairment or blindness despite wearing glasses. And so the numbers might not sound that much, but actually, you know, it's forecasted to have seven, I think, 74 million children for 2023 in the US. And if you do the maths, that's at least five million children with some kind of eye problem. So, you know, that's huge. It it is a significant (laughs) number. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned screening is where uh, people catch some of the problems. But let's say um, uh, screening hasn't occurred Mm -hmm. or they passed it. What are the signs that a kid has visual problems that a parent should be listening to? Sure, sure. That's a great question. I think parents are very astute at recognizing changes in their child's behavior. And visual behavior is very can be quite easy to kind of detect if there's been any changes. So I always say to parents, you know, do you notice anything different with the way your child looks at you? So from the age of about six to 12 weeks to about a year, we want them fixing and following. You know, they see you, they follow you across the room. They're smiling at you when they see your face. They're looking at from object to object, person to person. After the age of one, We want to see them being able to recognize objects near and far, recognize people near and far. So just looking at their visual behavior is one way of of detecting problems. Obviously, if parents notice that their child is holding their tablet very close to their face or they notice they're holding a book or a toy very close to their face, standing really, really close to the TV, um, any abnormal eye movements that just don't seem right, right, you know, those are red flags to say, you know what, I'm going to get in contact with a pediatrician and ask for a comprehensive eye exam just to just to kind of make sure that everything is OK. Well, you brought up uh, the phone, you brought up <laughs> computer, tablets, yes. TV. Yeah. Um, what can parents do to protect their kids' eyes from all of the screen time? It's everywhere. Yeah, it, it, it is. It is everywhere. And I think the key message is moderation. Okay. Um you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics say under the age of 24 months, they should have no screen time whatsoever. None. None whatsoever. <laughs> wow. Except for, you know, if they're FaceTiming uh, grandparents, sure. families that live abroad, that kind of thing. And then after the age of 24 months, they suggest uh, only one hour a day. Now, the kind of result of the pandemic and homeschooling is that education uh, establishments are depending more and more on personal screens to deliver this educational content to do homework. So one hour is not really going to cut it. So a couple of things I think parents can do uh, is limit the continuous use of screen time. So we have the 20-20-20 rule. Um, Basically, after 20 minutes of screen time, look at something 20 feet away for 20 seconds. Mm -hmm. That breaks up the monotony of continuously looking at this screen. I would also say it's really important for parents to make sure the screens aren't too close to their child, so they should be at least arm length away. And also, a lot of our devices now have the capability of changing the brightness and the contrast. Just to kind of limit eye strain, you know, like adults, when we've been looking at a computer for too long or looking at a phone for too long, um, your eyes can get tired, they start to water, they feel a bit dry. Same thing can happen for children. So these are all things that can can help limit that, essentially. Are there any special eye exercises or things that you can do in addition to moderation that's useful? In terms of uh, screen use? Yes. Not so much eye exercises. I think just 
you know, making sure there are lots of breaks taken. We do use eye exercises sometimes in our practice, but that's more for children with different types of crossing of the eyes. But we often would like to see them uh, in clinic and do a, you know, comprehensive exam just to make sure that um, they're suitable for those type of eye exercises. But certainly what I was saying about 20-20-20 rule, that kind of thing, taking breaks, not having the screens so close to the face and things like that really, really help um, with with screen use. And to all of our listeners out there, you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9. I'm Dr. Joe Servin. And if you're just joining us, we're talking about the health care of kids' vision. And we want to hear from you. If you have an idea for future shows, tweet me at jservin. We bring up nutrition in literally every show, sure. and I I know that it's the the adage is carrots and, yes. and and orange type of vegetables. But can you describe the right nutrition for sure. vision health? I think I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, <laughs> carrots. You know, Grandma used to say, "Eat yes. your carrots for your eyes." You know, vitamin A, C, and E very important for eye health. Um, omega threes, so fish, eggs, again, very important. You you get uh, a lot of vitamin A from leafy, you know, leafy green vegetables. All the a nice balanced diet is certainly very beneficial for your eyes as it is for your rest of your body. So I think that's the best way to describe how nutrition can can help with eye health for sure. Let me uh, talk uh, uh, just a, a quick question on the healthcare of of vision. Mm-hmm. Do kids have difficulty? accessing visual health care because of insurance? Sure, that's a very good question. I think the the good thing that has come out in the last 15 years or so is legislation made to basically voice that uh, vision care for children is an essential health benefit. And all 50 states, including Washington, D.C., have that kind of um, implemented in their state-based insurances. So we, we we are depending on parents to make sure that their children are insured. You know, these insurance plans will allow, you know, annual eye checks and glasses um, uh, every year. So getting insured, making sure you access that eye care is really, really important. The Office of um, Health Policy has some recent data saying that uninsured rates in children are down from 6.5% to 4.8%. So we're moving in the right direction, but there's still... A lot of work to be done in that respect. And also, I feel that not only do we have to look at the insurance side of things, but are there sufficient healthcare providers sure. around to be able to get to those children to get the care that they need? So are there enough pediatric ophthalmologists? Are there enough optometrists as well? So the access is there. It's getting better. It could be better. So hopefully as time goes on, We'll get to a point whereby, you know, every child gets the eye care that they need. Let me kind of uh, pivot a little to the eye exam itself. Mm-hmm. Um, I know when I get my exam, I get the uh, I get the, the dilator and all that type of stuff. Is there a difference in an adult eye exam? I know I know you are pediatric, but mm-hmm. an adult eye exam versus a pediatric one? There are some differences. I mean, the the general components of every comprehensive eye exam is you're checking vision, you're checking the pressures, you are looking at the external internal structures of the eye, at the front of the eye, at the back of the eye, and you're also checking for glasses prescription. So we're able to do all those components in children. The difference is how much of an examination you can get in one sitting is dependent on the child, how comfortable they feel. Are they very wary of you because you're a doctor? Have they had many doctor's appointments in the past and they're kind of very nervous? So we do try and do all those components for the children that we see, definitely at first visit. Um, and we do use dilating drops and we need to use dilating drops in children to check for their glasses prescription. Because that is the best way, gold standard way to check for glasses prescription in children. Um, Often I explain to parents, you know, it's a little bit like jumping into the pool first time of the day. You know, a bit of the pool water gets into your eyes. It stings a little bit. 
Um, and that's the point of the examination that children really, really don't like. The other reason is, is the drops that we use make the pupil bigger for a couple of hours and everything's very bright for yes. them. And, and it's also very blurred for them because they can't look at anything right. up close. So those are the two aspects that they, they, they really don't like. Um, okay. And it does wear off, but obviously we like to, whenever a child comes into practice for the first time for an eye exam we like to explain to the parents what and why we're doing because we find that once the parents are on board and comfortable with you know the examination and know what we're doing it, the children understand that and they can sense that in the room and hopefully that will help them be at ease with parts of the examination that we're doing let me go to a topic you brought up uh, mm -hmm. earlier and you brought up lazy eye which comes up a lot in mm -hmm. in school age kids mm -hmm. um how do you treat that? And, and what can parents do to support that treatment? Sure. So the first thing we do when we're suspecting a lazy eye or amblyopia in a child is that we check for glasses. That's, that's the, okay. the absolute first thing that we do. And even if with the glasses that one eye is not seeing as well as the other, we can talk about a, a treatment called patching. So essentially, the, the way that patching works is that we patch the better seeing eye. And that's because we want the brain to strengthen the connection between itself and the eye that's not seeing as well. And that's how the vision develops. So patching can be used and also eye drops to dilate the pupil, so make the pupil bigger in the better seeing eye to blur the vision again to kind of get the brain thinking, actually, that eye wasn't seeing so great before, but no, it's working. I'm going to build the connections and I'm going to try and improve the vision in that eye. So those are the two main ways. Wearing glasses and a patch for a child can be a little daunting. Yes. Um, lots of active encouragement, okay. you know, a little chart on the wall when, you know, so they can see how well they're doing. <laughs> yeah. um, going to schools, you know, because I think some of, sometimes it's, oh, I'm wearing a patch around my friends at school. Going into school and doing a show and tell and getting the other children oh. on board saying, oh, look, this is going to be great for your vision and, and, you know, encourage them and, you know, Kids are great and they love to encourage each other, you know. So when they know that their friend has to do something that seems a little bit odd, but realize, oh, actually, this is going to be great. They can help with the encouragement as well. Uh, one uh, topic that comes up a lot, especially at this time of year with football, soccer, mm -hmm. uh, and no, so many other sports, um, has to do with eye injuries. Yes. Um, what, uh, what specific preventative things should kids be doing when we're in, involved in these sports? Sure, great question. So the American Association of uh, Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus do recommend for high-velocity sports, ball sports, mm -hmm. your hockey, your baseball, your lacrosse, that you do wear some kind children should wear some kind of okay. um, sports goggles. Okay. Um, even more so for children who say they have a lazy eye. Um, they definitely need some protection uh, when playing it, just normal gym or hobbies because if they have a lazy eye and there's worse vision in one eye, you want to protect the better seeing eye as much as possible. Um, something we call monocular precautions, and we explain that to parents a lot. So the child may not actually need glasses per se, but we're protecting the other eye from any injury. And not just sports you have to think of, you know, Games around the home, certain toys around the home, high velocity toys. Parents should also be very cautious of them in terms of making sure they show their child not to point it at anyone's face and also think about wearing goggles when playing those games as well. Let's um, go into the world of school. Um, mm -hmm. If When should parents suspect that schoolwork that they're not doing well mm -hmm. and you, you know, it often comes up and maybe it's, their eyes or glasses. Mm -hmm. um, when should you worry uh, that that's the way it's presenting uh, in terms of a visual issue? No, that's a great question. I think look at where your child is sitting in class. Do they prefer, do they do better when they're sitting close up to the teacher and the school board? Are they a little shy and not really responsive? And you can find out great information from the teacher about that. You know, do you find when they're sitting further back in the class, they don't really engage as much as when they're at the front of the class? That can indicate a vision problem. Um, do they complain when they're looking at their screen or their books? 
that they're not really seeing well. Again, that can indicate a, a, a problem there. So having a conversation with the teachers just to find out how the, the child is doing in school and if they've noticed themselves any um, differences in where they're sitting in class, do they tilt or turn their head to kind of see them or look at the board? All those are really good indicators that actually should we go and get an eye check just to make sure everything is okay. Do you have any, uh, and I'm sure you have many of these, but it's kind of like a story or uh, of a patient that you could share with uh, with all of us, you know, that gives you uh, gives us all a sense of your practice. Sure, I think the lovely thing about working with children is the impact you can have um, with their with their day to day life. You know, you always can hear the story of so, a child who comes into the practice that a bit shy. Um, don't really engage with their friends, don't really engage with family members. And they come in and actually they need glasses. And the difference in the the personality of that child, is it's really heartwarming and really, really, it, it makes you really love what you do when you see that because something so simple to our minds as they just needed glasses, right. you know, and this whole personality change. You know, I love it when parents come in and say, yeah, like they're doing so much better at school and they're really interacting with everyone and family members and they're really more outgoing. That for me is a, a great reward of what we do. I could, I could picture that uh, without a problem there. Uh, can you give some common misconceptions that the general public may have about kids' eye health that you're going to set the record straight right now, right here, uh, to dispel. Okay, sure. So I think one of the main misconceptions is that children wearing glasses makes their vision worse as time goes on. You will hear sometimes parents say, but if I put them in glasses at such a young age, it's just going to make their vision I've work. heard that. Oh, yes. <laughs> I used to hear that from my own grandmother. So I know that misconception <laughs> is there. Uh, but actually, it's not, you know, sometimes parents will come in, they'll get a pair of glasses and they come back for a follow-up visit maybe a year later and the glasses prescription has changed. It's got a little bit worse. It's not because the vision has got worse because of the glasses. It's just because of the natural growth of the eye of the child. I and I think that if I can, one misconception I can <laughs> dispel today would definitely be that one. Because in the back of their mind, they're thinking, oh, they've got the glasses. Everything is solved. Everything is fixed. But actually, the eyes are growing. So the prescription will change as the eyes grow. So, yeah. Um, are there any new advancements in your field, uh, treatments, technologies, I mean, they're everywhere, mm -hmm. that you think parents need to know about that maybe we don't? Sure. So for the treatment of lazy eye or amblyopia, you know, as I said before, traditionally we'd do patching or eye drops. And the FDA in the last couple of years have approved some digital uh, therapeutics which are quite clever in that they do a similar job of what patching and uh, drops do, but there are either glasses that you put on and you can look at a tablet for an hour and play a game, watch a movie, or they're like a, a virtual reality headset. Mm -hmm. So they're essentially doing the same thing whereby in the better seeing eye, they're blurring the vision a little bit more so that the brain says in the worst seeing eye, right, I am going to strengthen these connections and I'm going to build up this vision in this eye. And so we're seeing those coming more and more into practice. They're not quite there yet, but we're really excited because it gives us some another tool to help parents who may be struggling with the patching or the eye drops. And maybe this might be more acceptable to the children to, to help with amblyopia treatment. So those uh, products coming on to, coming more into practice are, are, are really exciting. And we're hoping that we're able to, at some point in the future, offer it to all our patients who need amblyopia treatment. One other question. Um, can you explain or at least guide us as mm -hmm. to the type of sunglasses mm. that we should be using. We are in sunny Florida. We are. We are. <laughs> a lot of uh, ocean water yes. and all that good stuff. 
Can you just kind of comment on that? Sure. So sunglasses, the whole aim of sunglasses is to filter out light and protect your eyes from uh, the the dangerous UV rays of the sun. And in some respects, children need sunglasses more than adults because they can't protect their eyes from the sun as much as adults can. One thing I will say, though, is be very careful of where and which sunglasses you buy. They need to be particularly labored. So they really should be labeled uh, uh, blocks 99 to 100% of UVA and UVB light. Okay. If parents don't see that label, there's no point buying them because you're not sure if you're buying the correct sunglasses to help protect the eyes. So just be very sure of what you're seeing labeled the glasses being able to do because the point is you want to protect their eyes from the UVA and UVB light. So that's the the most important advice I would give. In our last moment, um, if some listener wants to get more information just in general about vision care for little ones uh, and, and, and others, uh, where do you recommend that they go to get that information? Sure. So the American Association of Pediatric Ophthalmology and Strabismus has a wonderful section for patients and parents. Basically, it outlines different different definitions that they may ha- learn in their clinic appointments, conditions that their children may have. And it's just a really nice resource whereby they're able to gain that information. You know, they may have heard the term in clinic. It might have been explained, but they're, they're not quite sure how to explain it to the rest of the family. The wonderful, wonderful website with all the different eye terms, how eye examinations are done, things like that. So I, I definitely recommend they, they check that out. Dr. Ants, I just want to thank you so much uh, for this wonderful set of, I've learned a lot just talking to you. Thanks so much for coming in studio and joining us today. This is terrific. Oh, well, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. We've been talking to Dr. Michelle Atz. She is a practicing pediatric ophthalmologist at Nemours Clinic and Wolfson's Children's Hospital here in Jacksonville, Florida. Up next, we talk to psychotherapist Dr. Donna Gaffney and wellness coach Nicole Foster about their new book from Johns Hopkins Press, Courageous Wellbeing for Nurses. And it's not just for nurses. We'll be right back. It's gonna be bright, bright, sunshiny day. I think I Welcome back. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and this is What's Health Got to Do With It? Exhausting schedules and a tumultuous work environment have left many nurses feeling burned out. There are multiple strikes across the United States and other countries with nurses saying they've had enough. The COVID-19 pandemic only compounded problems that have been plaguing nurses for decades. This has left many in the profession with one existential question. How can you take care of others when you don't have the time or energy to take care of yourself? Well, our next guests have a solution in their new book, Courageous Wellbeing for Nurses, Strategies for Renewal. Psychotherapist and advanced practice psychiatric provider, and mental health nurse, Dr. Donna Gaffney, and National Board Certified Health and Wellness Coach, Nicole Foster, help provide essential strategies and resources, and they join our show now. Dr. Gaffney, welcome. Nicole, welcome to our program. Thank you so much, Dr. Servin. It's uh, wonderful to be here. Thank you. I'm very excited to connect with you guys as well. It's so wonderful to have you both here. Um, Don, I'm going to start with you, Dr. Gaffney. What inspired you to write a book specifically addressing the well-being for nurses? Uh, and I, I'm just kind of curious, what led you that down that direction? It's a great question and one that I have spent a lot of time thinking about. I have worked with nurses throughout my professional career nurses in the NICU and the ICU, sexual assault nurse examiners. So I know the toll that our work can place on us. 
And when the pandemic began, um, I was riveted to a lot of the social media posts and saw uh, one post in particular, a nurse's photo, um, looking out at her readers and, and saying, please forgive me, I can't cope anymore. And at that moment I said, I, I have to do something. I have to, you know, I spend my career talking to people. This is the time for me to talk to nurses and to see what they need. Uh, so I began by doing some webinars for Rutgers University and, uh, and really began to do some, uh, you know, scheduling sessions with nurses through the Emotional PPE Project and began to think that I need to put all of this in one place. And at that point, a colleague uh, directed me to Nicole's website and uh, I saw that she uh, had a, a wonderful booklet on um, about well-being in the waiting. And she covers areas as a health and wellness coach that I don't usually cover as a mental health uh, provider um, about nutrition and exercise and sleep. And so I said, why don't we join together and write something together for nurses? And that's kind of how it began. I love how, uh, I love how that organic uh, way that you kind of constructed it. Nicole, uh, one of the things that really struck me, we've, we've done several books on this show uh, where we look at wellness, but what's unique to me about this book is the collaboration between a mental health nurse, psychotherapist, and you, a wellness coach. How, how do you think, as you walked into this collaboration, how, did, how does this enhance the, the well-being strategies that you both present? That's a great question. I really appreciate and have um, a lot of gratitude for the work that Donna does as a psychotherapist in the nursing field. And she comes in with all of these really relevant and timely experiences and stories from nurses. And my angle as a health and wellness coach is to give those specific strategies that help promote health and well-being. And while I wasn't able to help um, nurses dealing with the conditions they were dealing with during COVID and even in present times, what we can give them are these really supportive strategies that will help them cope and get through these times that are challenging and learn ways to make those sustainable habits for themselves. Donna, one of the things that really struck me, and, and my wife, for full disclosure, is a nurse, and so we both looked at your book at, together, uh, is the beginning of each chapter uh, where nurses share their own stories. And when I read those stories, I, I, my only reaction is, oh, oh my goodness, uh, they're, they're heart-wrenching in some cases. Uh, was there an anecdote or two that you could share with our listeners from those sections that, that really resonated with you? Oh, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to uh, talk about um, the incredible nurse storytellers who were so generous in writing their own stories. We knew that it was important for them to share their stories, but we also knew it was important for them to write their stories. So these these stories are in their own words. They they were not they're not my story to tell. It's theirs, and there uh, there are several that really stand out. And I I brought with me an as we enter this process of how we organize each chapter. And uh, one is um, from a longtime colleague of mine, uh, Karen, who lives in Oklahoma. She's an emergency room nurse, and she actually talked about something not related to the pandemic. And she talked about um, her own situation of being sexually assaulted. Mm. Uh, by her ex-husband and how when she got to the emergency room, the resident who was on call pulled out the evidence collection kit from the shelf on the shelf and started to read the directions. And as she tells, tells the story, it's like, wait a minute, um, I think I better help out here. So she actually walked the resident through her own evidence collection. She went to trial. Um, there was jail time involved. But more than that, she took this very traumatic situation and caused and created an opportunity for herself to not only cope with it, but to make a difference in the lives of other women. 
and other individuals, children, men and women who were sexually assaulted. And she uh, began by taking a course and learning how to be a sexual assault nurse examiner. And that's when I first met her. Um, and as a matter of fact, we spoke together at a conference last week. She's, she thought that this is something that she needed to do. And she wow. was very involved in a number of different programs as a speaker, um, a consultant to law and order. Um, and so she took this experience and, and I just have to use her words because that really says it all. Sure, sure. She said, I used to wonder why I had to endure this horrible betrayal, this unspeakable trauma, but I've come to realize that 1994 did not happen to me because of what I had done. It happened to me because of everything I would do. I turned a mess into a message. And uh, it's just an extraordinary human being who really took, um, you know, took that trauma and turned it into something so positive. You, you almost have me speechless there that, uh, wow. Um, another, I have ahead. another one if you want no, to hear that. Well, you know um, what, uh, that, that really, uh, please go ahead. I, I think uh, that we would all appreciate it. So um, during the pandemic, very, very early on, uh, one of, our, one of the nurses who works in New Jersey um, tells the story about how it being Easter Sunday and her 87-year-old patient was actively dying. And one of the hard, she said, it's one of the hardest days of my life, one that she'll never forget. And her daughter, the 87-year-old the woman's daughter was not there. And her, she, uh, Claudia says, my heart was telling me to call her daughter. And she did. She got everything ready with the iPhone and really took care of making sure that they connected. She listened to the daughter crying over the phone as she wanted to see her mother and say goodbye. And, and Claudia said it was destroying her inside. But after that happened and, and um, her patient died, that Sunday afternoon, Easter Sunday, she told her colleagues that they needed to take a moment of silence. And they walked to a quiet place and made a circle, held hands, some of them prayed, some of them were very quiet, prayed for strength and silence to keep them safe and strong for their patients, for their families, for this nightmare to be over soon. What she didn't know is that a clerk who working that day took a photo of the nurses standing in a circle and supporting each other and posted it on, on a, a social media. An artist saw the photo and painted it for them. And that painting was then submitted to the Rockefeller Center Foundation uh, for their flag project. It was turned into a flag and flew over Rockefeller Center in New York City. And they were all invited to come to see the flag uh, flying above um, them standing there. It was an extraordinary moment that where, where there was acknowledgement of the work that they did, not only for their patients, but how they supported each other. That is absolutely amazing. And, and oh my, wow. Uh, Nicole, um, kind of riffing off of what these stories I just heard, there's one of the concepts that's brought up in the book is courageous well-being. And after these past two stories, uh, courageous well-being almost seems self-evident. But can you elaborate, what does that mean? Uh, and how does it apply to nurses and non-nurses? Yeah, I'm, I think it's quite evident from those stories, the idea of courage and the concept of courage. And um, in terms of well-being, we really view it as the ability to pursue your goals or our purpose, despite the risk or the fear, um, is that very essence of courage and being courageous enough to be the best version of yourself and to really take care of yourself and lead you on this journey of well-being um, and evaluating what your needs are and if they're not being met, how can we meet those and how can we really take really, really good care of ourselves um, is how we really explain this concept of courageous well-being. Donna, one of the other things that uh, came out in the book that also kind of, kind of, I remember circling when I was kind of going through it is that, um, there's a, a role for activism and advocacy in well-being. And I think some folks may be surprised by that, especially when we're talking about strikes 
from nurses and doctors, I might add, uh, in uh, different healthcare settings. Can you discuss the role of activism and advocacy as it pertains to well-being? Dr. Servan, that's a great question and one that frequently surprises um, people who are reading our book and are listening to our, our lectures. Um, activism is a long, long established tradition. We've seen other people outside of healthcare who have taken on the mantle. So think about um, Mothers Against Drunk Driving and the AIDS epidemic and the movement for the AIDS activists that they actually got things to change. And some of the, my colleagues um, have been very, very involved and they talked about what it did for them. One, uh, her name is Donna and another Carol, they both went to Haiti after the earthquake and um, stayed with the families, stayed with the individuals of providing medical care, but the other uh, person, Carol, uh, decided that that Haiti needed more resources for healthcare providers. They had very few nurses in Haiti and absolutely no nurse practitioners. So she joined uh, with an organization and started an organization called Help for Haiti and combined the efforts of nurses in Haiti with nurses in the United States. And now there are there are nurse practitioners in Haiti. And what it does physiologically for you, it improves your sense of well-being and sense of accomplishment. You meet new people, you connect with them, you find a way to uh, monitor and, and look at the kinds of things that you're addressing in your own life and in your practice. Um, you, it's a way for, for you to also sort of write about and experience those, those moments. Um, there is no question that there's a benefit to this, um, and we encourage nurses all the time to take a moment and think about what you'd like to do outside of your work that would make a difference. And it really is a very healing experience. Wow. Nicole, um, one of the things that also um, kind of resonated for me personally is this concept of self-compassion. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, how, how can you advise individuals to develop the mindset of self-compassion, uh, especially as it pertains to a profession? Yeah, this is something that comes up constantly in our conversations with nurses and my work with clients is how can we promote self-compassion? How can we make it a part of our everyday life? And a lot of us are really self-critical and have that negative voice in our minds where we're being judgmental or we're not being as kind or gentle with ourselves as we can be. And we um, promote a lot of the work that Kristen Neff does around self-compassion and this idea of fierce and tender self-compassion. And with fierce self-compassion, that's kind of that mama bear energy, really looking out for your needs, protecting yourself. And then with that, um, gentle or tender self-compassion, it's how can I be kinder? How can I be a little bit warmer to myself? And I think one of the first questions that we can ask ourselves when we're looking to be more self-compassionate is would I say this thought or would I do this thing um, to a friend? And if the answer is no, consider why is that the case? Why are you not treating your friend the way you're treating yourself? And it can sound simple or silly to hear at first, but really thinking in this way of how can I best take care of myself and not being hard on ourselves because being our hard, hard on ourselves is not going to help us be more productive or have better outcomes. It's really taking inventory of our needs and how we're treating ourselves that helps us move through life. Don, I'm going to give you the final word. Uh, what, what, <laughs> do you, you. What, what would you like to share with our listeners in terms of just practical advice? Well, the first thing um, I'd like to mention is that we hear the word, the well-worn phrase, self-care, all the time. And I would like people to know that this phrase is misleading, it is vague, and it means something different to each one of us. And it recently has been commandeered by Madison Avenue, social media, and even hospital administrators. Nurses, I, we can see it. They, I say the word self-care and they roll their eyes. <laughs> how do I have time for this? And, you know, I get a, an email from my um, hospital saying, be sure to 
you know, practice your self-care. And then I get an email saying, can you work three shifts? So I want people to rethink and reimagine how you enhance your well-being. Well-being is the goal. And it doesn't have to be a specific strategy, but you're, you stay goal focused. And two things that I, um, that we talk about in the book um, at great length is that beyond yoga, meditation, eating well, sleeping well, there are those other things that give us joy. For example, music and the arts. Those two are ways that we can protect our well-being and become, you know, enhance our well-being. Um, there is a lot of literature supporting being in green spaces in nature, and um, that's free. You walk outside. We don't have to buy anything special. Uh, walking outside, being watching the ocean, uh, walking in a forest, all of those things are very, very helpful and therapeutic. So my my first step would be, let's go outside. And I actually do sessions with my clients outside, ecotherapy. Um, and so I think that you begin with the things that you love. And mu music, the arts, poetry, fiction is also helpful. Uh, so find things that really um, allow you to embrace who you are as a person and go from there. I'm going to let that be our very last word. And what a beautiful sentiment. I want to thank uh, you, uh, Dr. Donna Gaffney, and you, Nicole Foster, for just sharing so much of your time and wisdom today. Uh, I'm certain this book will be a big help to so many people. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Dr. Sarban. It's been a pleasure. We have been talking to psychotherapist and advanced practice psychiatric mental health nurse, Dr. Donna Gaffney, and to board-certified health and wellness coach, Nicole Foster, and their terrific new book. You don't have to be a nurse to read it. It's called Courageous Wellbeing for Nurses, Strategies for Renewal. Well, that's our program for today. We hope you've enjoyed our show. If you missed anything, you can listen to the full episode at WJCT.org and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to all of our guests. Our executive producer is David Luckett. Stacey Bennett is our producer. Brady Corum is our director. Next week's program is our monthly medical roundtable. If you have questions about this or any topic, let us know by calling us at 904-358-6362, email us at health at wjct.org, or tweet me at jserve. I'm Dr. Joe Servin, and you're listening to What's Health Got to Do With It on WJCT News 89.9 Jacksonville. Thank you for listening, and stay in touch. Sponsored in part by Eli Lilly and Company. Is migraine impacting your life or daily activities four or more days per month? If so, ask your healthcare professional if you are a candidate for migraine prevention treatments and which ones might be best for you. Learn more at thinkmigraine.com. The American Brain Foundation. For over 30 years, the foundation has worked with researchers to discover better treatment, prevention, and cures for brain diseases and disorders. Imagine life without brain disease. Learn more at AmericanBrainFoundation.org. And Rethreaded restores choice and breaks the cycle of generational trauma for survivors of human trafficking in Jacksonville, Florida, through business. You can help. Learn more about Rethreaded survivor-created goods at the storefront or rethreaded.com shop.